You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2007. Uh, this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society, and joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everybody. Jay Novella. Happy 2007. And Evan Bernstein. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. How are you all doing? Thank well, you. Good. Fine. Super. So the first news item for this first show of 2007 is that uh, I have started a new blog. The Yay, wow. Steve. What's a blog? That's fantastic. <laughs> it's a uh <laughs> it's the Neurologica blog. Uh of course the links will be on the the Skeptics Guide site um and the, and also the Nest site and it's going to be about it's a daily blog. It'll be about neuroscience, skepticism and critical thinking. So kind of an, an even mix of just general skeptical stuff, the kind of things we talk about on this show, but also um I'll be spending a lot of time talking about neurology and neuroscience, which is my specialty. I already have, I think, six or seven entries in there. You know, as Jay and I were working on the site, I wanted to put up some entries. But January 1st is its official start date, and I'll try to keep it daily from that point forward. So check it out. Steve, are you going to maintain multiple entries as you have now? What do you mean? Well, I, I was kind of surprised to see a blog with so many different sections to it, you know, like so many different things that you're blogging on. Um, but I guess a lot of it had to do with the end of, end of the year news and stuff. All of skepticism is fair game for the blog. And it'll probably be about half that and half neuroscience. Uh, but it'll be, you know, I'm just getting started, so I'm sure it'll evolve over time as well. This is also the beginning of a new year. And one of the things that we like to do is to look back over uh, the previous year, specifically at psychic predictions and how the psychics fared for their predictions for 2006. Uh, and as usual, they didn't do very well. That was my prediction when the year started, is that they wouldn't that was, do yes. very well. Oh, look at you. You should be up for a million dollars. I could think of some good ways to spend that. <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of uh, psychics and others try to um, you know bolster their their street cred and try to get, you know, media attention by by claiming that they've made stunning predictions that have come true. So what they typically do is either make a long laundry list of predictions, so using the gunshot approach, as we say, and hoping that, you know, a few of them will turn out to be correct. And they point to the correct <laughs> predictions and, and ignore the ones that they missed. Or Please, they hope one of them will be correct. Right. <laughs> or they make vague predictions predictions that are vague enough that they could fit, you know, something that happens into it. War will escalate in Iraq. No, it's worse than that. A la Nostradamus. The horsemen will ride with the fireball. Ah, World War Two. <laughs> you know, come on. Right. Or or they'll make very high probability predictions. So those those are what they do. They make, you know, Many predictions, high probability predictions, or vague predictions. Like California will have an earthquake. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, without saying when or without saying what the how severe it's going to be. It, interestingly, I found that Pat Robertson's in the prediction game. He, he oh, has man, a, he is <laughs> such a jackass. Now, 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 now. 
No, now now you're insulting jackass. You're insulting jackasses. It's true. Yeah, hey. I uh, I apologize to jackasses everywhere yes, thank because you. Pat Robertson is so far below them that it's not even funny. What's his most recent thing that that everybody in some urban center is going to die, yeah, right? It, it, but he can't say whether it's nuclear or not. This is going to be a major mass killing in late in 2007. This is his prediction for the yeah. next year. He says, and I'm quoting, I'm not necessarily saying it's going to be nuclear, but he said, the Lord didn't say nuclear, but I do believe it will be something like that. So so it's like the Lord gave him some specifics, but not enough that might, you know, help. Right. Yeah, like, like God doesn't know, right? <laughs> now, Steve, this guy, how many, is this the guy that had sex with prostitutes? What no, no, this no, guy no, no. That's no, Jimmy no, Swagger. No, 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 no. This, this is, is the 700 Club. This is Pat Robertson, the man who thinks he can uh, leg press two billion pounds. <laughs> oh, and... is he, who's the one that saw the 500 foot Jesus in the desert? I think what? that was what? him. Is that him? Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Remember I remember that. that. No, did I think it was 900 foot. 900. Hello. It was 900 okay, we're, foot. We're, we're confusing our jackasses here. <laughs> Sorry. We really Sorry. Really back on Wait, track. 900. No, 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 no. 900 foot Jesus is a DJ. Everybody who's cool Rebecca, knows that. Rebecca, they, they, the DJ picked it because this idiot said he saw a 900 foot <laughs> Jesus in the desert. All right, all right, you win. But let's look back at some of his recent, his previous predictions. In two th- for 2005, Robertson predicted that Bush would have victory after victory in his second term. He said Social Security there reform proposals would be approved. There we go. And, and that Bush would nominate some conservative judges to the federal courts. <coughs> he, he didn't say by whom they'd be approved. <laughs> so he got, the, he got the conservative judges correct. That was kind of a high probability uh, guess. Totally wrong on oh, everything yeah. else. In this article about him, it says, in quotes, I have a relatively good track record. Sometimes I miss. But I, I wasn't sure if that was Pat Robertson <laughs> talking or God talking. Exactly. How could he miss with Jesus on board? I, I don't get it. And for 2006, he said, uh, in May of 2006, Robertson said <clears throat> God told him that storms and possibly a tsunami were to crash into America's coastline in 2006. So one of them were lying. Right. Uh, even though the U.S. was not hit with a tsunami, Robertson on Tuesday cited last spring's heavy rains and flooding in New England as partly fulfilling the prediction. No! No, he did it. Old retrofitting. Hey, is the prediction half empty or half yeah. full, you know? That's how you look at it. Oh, my God. A tsunami. <laughs> right. Trillions of gallons of water will smash into a coastline. It rained a half an inch last night. Get a life! <laughs> Right, so basically, he could not. Have, if he was going to count some heavy rains, you know, he could not possibly have gotten that prediction wrong. I got a few here that are funny. Here's one um, from Psychic Hope, her from her predictions of for 2006. Uh, Saddam Hussein is sentenced to prison for the rest of his life. That's true. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he, his life ended. Yeah, prison it's of true. death. I'll be a brief. I'll be a brief. Here's here's another one from from, from my uh, like from my category called duh. Musicians and actors and people <laughs> major of major creative fields join together to assist the people of the of third world countries. Well, what what are the odds of that happening? Wait, when did they, when was this prediction made? These are for, these are supposed to have happened in two thousand six. So I assume the end of two thousand five. She made these. Yeah, but didn't that happen her, like about four or five times already? I know it's funny. I uh, here's another <laughs> here's another guy. I never heard of this guy. Al Mean. He's a mystic. And, of course, the website describes him as, Almin is considered a leading mystic of the 21st century. 
He had, he had two gems here. One of them was the emergence of 600 Atlantean-speaking people from the inner Earth. Okay. That would be interesting. From the inner Earth. And then th this one just kind of blew my mind. The entering into physicality of the New Jerusalem and the installation of the sacred government under the goddess of creation called the Emanuela. Mm. Wow. Oh, that's that's pretty, at least he's pretty specific. Yeah, hard to mistake that. I, I thought Atlanteans, though, excuse me, I thought Atlanteans came from the ocean. They come from Georgia. Not the inner earth. They sank down there, uh -oh. I guess. Yeah, I mean, they, it, it, it wasn't always underwater. At one point it was above water, and then it sank. Get with it. And, and kept sinking till it was down in the middle of the earth? Yeah, I mean... Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Duh. Hollow Earth. Maybe that Duh. was like on a Justice League or something, and I missed. Here's um, Elizabeth Barron's predictions for 2006. She's another psychic, alleged psychic. She said, uh, when asked specifically about terrorism in the U.S., she said, there are many acts of terrorism in America which are not being told by the media that they are acts of terrorism. Okay? She just goes on no. on that vein forever. Uh -huh. So in other words, if there's, are, if there's acts of terrorism, then she was right. And if there weren't, then the media's lying about it. About Saddam Hussein, she was also, by the way, Saddam Hussein was executed a few days ago. And she wrote that um, there will be delays upon delays, and we should be very cautious because this guy could escape very easily. All righty. Well, she didn't say he was going to escape. She <laughs> yeah. said that he could escape. So this is, how they, this is how they weasel their way out of this. Right. Oh, hatch doors all over these predictions. I mean, they escape hatches <laughs> everywhere. Steve, uh, Barron's also had some predictions about earthquakes which I did a little research on. She said that there will be six major earthquakes. Two will be in America. Now, according to the National Earthquake Information Center, uh, U.S. Geological Survey, worldwide there were... Now, how do you define major yeah. earthquake? That, that's an important point. Uh, I, well, I actually, I actually did a search, and I got some cryptic response from Google uh, that said that a major earthquake is defined as anything in the 7 range, so 7.0 to 799. I guess you could maybe make an argument. Maybe that's maybe that's what it is considered a major earthquake if you're in, in the sevens on the Richter scale. But if it is, if that's the case, then there were nine. There were nine last year worldwide. So she was off by fifty percent. But if you include like say six, you know, six to six point nine, yeah. there were seventy nine of those. So she she'd be way off there. Now for the U.S., she predicted there would be two in America. Uh, we uh, we had no sevens and no eights or nines. Uh, we did have six. Earthquakes in the six range, six point zero to six point nine. So uh, it's pretty. Yeah, she also she's too, she's so. terrible track record. She said the stock market would go down, down, down. <laughs> yeah, like wrong. That. Uh, <laughs> the avian flu will spread to the United States. Some of her some of her predictions are not really predictions. They're just sort of I don't know obvious statements. Stem cell replacement must be looked at and looked at as a way of healing many. It's like a fortune cookie fortune there, you know. Yeah. Oh my What's God. that? That's right. Not, that's <laughs> and Steve, she, she made it sound like, doesn't she make it sound like in a couple spots that it's, it's a therapy that you can go to your doctor for? She made it sound like, you know, it does, it cures cancer. But, well, well yeah, well, <sighs> maybe, but the jury's still out on that yet, and she's making it sound like It's not like even it's, a prediction. It's just, it's just noise. Now, Jay, you had sent me Sylvia Brown's yeah, predictions, awesome. but these are for the next hundred years. Ooh. Yeah. I recommend oh, wow. I recommend that everyone listening to this goes to the link and just reads. She has um, 40 predictions on her site, and every single one of them is hysterical. Is it her awful voice reading them? <laughs> no, no, it's just a list of them. And, uh, and Bob, uh, Bob and I talked Goodness. earlier today, and we picked a few of our favorites. So l let okay. me tell you. Uh, Next 100 right, years. What number two on there, she said, um, this is one of Bob's favorites, robotic houses. Controlled by computerized switchboard. 
And Bob, so I'm talking to Bob, and I'm like, Bob, first of all, many houses are already controlled by computers. Or like, this is not a prediction anymore. And switchboards? Who, I mean, who, who uses switchboards? <laughs> like that's like from the switchboard. '60s. A switchboard. I, I, I picture a freaking operator. <laughs> Some of some of these predictions like science fiction from the 1930s. Yeah, it does. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Here's one. By 2055, most people will be living in domed cities due to poor atmospheric conditions. Right. Domed cities? That's 100 years old. That's that's, you know, nonsense. Can, can you imagine doming a city with that would involve? I mean, it's really sad, you know. Yeah, here's a, here's a couple that I like. Thir- the third floor of houses will have a rollback roofs to allow hovercrafts to come and go. Well, wait a second. Hovercrafts don't hover more than a few feet off the ground. How are they going to, you know, how are they going to hover to the top of the roof of your house? Wouldn't it be like, you know, an airplane yeah. or something? Hovercrafts just don't do that. Um, Not in my dome see, city. Another one. <laughs> uh, treatment. This is a good one. Treatment for depression and mood disorders will come from a control chamber that emits sensory stimulation. What is that? An orgasmatron? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, don't even, don't even say something like that in in the context of Sylvia Brown. Oh, okay. That makes me vomit in my mouth, and when I vomit in my mouth, I can't continue on with the podcast. Listen okay? to this one. Right. Just so you know, uh, new exercise equipment that you sit or stand in, and it literally stimulates your muscles with electricity to achieve the same effect as physical exercise. Okay, hello. It's already been shown not to work. Yeah, they already exist, right. and they exactly. don't work. She saw it at a 3 a.m. <laughs> infomercial and said, hey, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, this, is talk- this is going for the totally obvious. A moon base is created for people to visit, and as a stopping place for further trips. <laughs> what does that even mean? A moon base. But, but, but little go. did the people know, the moon is actually a flying saucer. A hunt, uh, so within the next hundred <laughs> years, we're going to have a moon base. Wow, she's really going out on a limb on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is way out. I, I like I like also the the confusion of technologies. Yeah. Yes, here a virtual reality headset will stimulate brainwaves, so people can learn whole libraries of information within hours. Well, hello, what is, what does virtual reality have to do with any of that stuff? <laughs> Jay, what did you say when I was talking to you? The way you put yeah, it, was I put funny. it like, okay, so someone's going to invent a way to display information that will allow us to learn information million times faster just by arranging pixels in a certain order. It makes absolutely no sense. Like, if you're right. watching it, so I was telling Bob, I'm like, it's going to be like um, like in the Matrix. It's going to be like, what well, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to It's going to be super sped up bullshit. And like, I, I understand now. No. Yeah, like that one she pulled right from the <laughs> Matrix. And she just threw in the term virtual reality there because it sounds futuristic. But she doesn't even know what it is, apparently. Sounds like Sylvia watches a lot of TV. All right, how about the, this one? This one creeped me out. People will be able to simply walk out of their bodies upon death. <laughs> but but we'll never be able to know. <laughs> what the, uh, hello, we'll be able to. This is a new thing. Walk out meaning what? Shed your skin. Wait, you wait. Okay, forget it. I don't want to talk about that. The question I had is, you know, why do this? Why make predictions for the next hundred years? The only thing I could imagine is you can't fail, or if you do, you're not around to, to suffer the the scorn. I think she's going for the whole Nostradamus legacy thing here. I think she's hoping that fifty years from now. People will retrofit some things into her predictions and make her into the next Nostradamus. Good luck. She wishes. Hey, you never know. I mean, you know, it's. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, look, look at like Edward Casey. You know, this guy was a total charlatan, a total you know nobody. He's got followers, and over time, 
you know, he's going to be built up into much more of a figure. Think of Nostradamus. The guy was just a charlatan of his time. He was just a quack. And he, now he's got this, this mythic figure just, just because he's you know, survived. His name has survived through time. So who knows, 100 years from now, Sylvia Brown could have the stature of Nostradamus. Guy's on the History Channel, Nostradamus, for heaven's sakes. So I'm officially putting uh, Sylvia Brown in league with Tom Cruise. Wow. (laughs) After reading that, you're insulting insulting both of them simultaneously. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, they're my two most hated now. That's it. These two, top. You hear that, Sylvia? You just made the list. (laughs) (laughs) The J list. Maybe we can interview her. <laughs> yeah, for seven hundred dollars sure. for a half hour. <laughs> I wouldn't pay that harlot two oh. cents. Hey, Perry, you can't call her that. A couple more quick news items before we go on to your emails. A while back, a few years ago, in Cobb County, Georgia, the school board required the placing of a sticker inside biology textbooks that basically was a disclaimer saying that evolution is just a theory and is not a proven scientific sa- fact. Well, they were required to remove those stickers and a few years ago. And since then, they have been appealing federal decision to try to get them put back in. Oh, I thought appealing the stickers. So. Yeah. The families have been also suing the school board. So what happened on December 20th was that the school officials agreed to drop their four-year-long attempt to appeal this decision. So they're dropping any attempt to put back the stickers in the, in the, in the textbooks. They're also paying $167,000 in legal fees to the plaintiffs. Awesome. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. They, they totally caved. This is a quote from Debbie Seagrave, the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, Union's Georgia affiliate, who said the case is done and they have agreed never again to put stickers in the textbooks. So this is just a, a, a period at the end of this tiny chapter in the creationism anti-evolution movement. It's good to see. Happy news. should celebrate it when, when and where we make progress, although they never go away. We'll always have to fight this fight. It's good to see that we could win some battles. The next news item comes from Scotland, and this is a, a recent publication that uh, surveyed patients, like uh, thousands of patients in, in Scotland, to try to get a handle on uh, how many physicians were prescribing e- either homeopathic remedies or herbal remedies. So this the survey suggests that as many as 60% of Scottish doctors are prescribing either homeopathic or herbal remedies. Whoa. Actually, it was more for homeopathic. As about 49% has pres- prescribed at least some homeopathic remedies and about 38% some herbal remedy. Ugh. Oh, my God. If it's not homeopathic, it's crack. <laughs> crap. <laughs> <laughs> Although only about 5% of the Scottish physicians were responsible for the vast majority of the, pre- of the prescriptions, which is actually that's not too dissimilar to the United States where there are about 4 or 5% or so of physicians pre- will prescribe homeopathic remedies and the, and the rest do not. Hang on, Steve. Can, can you actually prescribe a homeopathic I mean, do you really need a prescription to do that? Yes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Here's a glass of water. You need a prescription for that? Well, in the United States, the uh, at the time, you know, early on in the FDA's history, the federal, the Food and Drug Administration, the, 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 organ, the federal agency that regulates drugs. So in the early days of the FDA, the homeopathy lobby in this country was at its peak, and they actually got a, a law passed through Congress to grandfather in the homeopathic pharmacopoeia into the FDA as approved drugs. They actually are approved wow. by the FDA. It's scary. 
That's brutal. Yeah, I mean, it was like in the 1930s or something, but that's it. That's the legacy now that we have. Doesn't it blow your mind that the, the FDA approved water? Yeah, it's nonsense. Or not even. Yeah. Again, occasionally the the topic of homeopathy comes up because there's some news item associated with it, but you don't have the, op- the opportunity to go into it in detail. So on the links page, there's a link to a previous episode where we talked about it in detail. Uh, that was episode number 59. And also an article that I wrote, which is a pretty good overview of homeopathy. Um, and as you, you're hearing my fellow skeptics say, homeopathic remedies are, are literally placebos or just water. They're, they're diluted beyond any, any uh, active ingredient being retained in the, in the snake oil. So The vibrations. Right, everybody has the vibrations. <laughs> uh, and the, if you look at all of the evidence, it shows that it basically doesn't work. But, you know, it, it, it's always been popular in Great Britain. That's really where it's the, the focus of its popularity. It's never been as popular in America as it, as it has been in Europe in, in general and in the, the United Kingdom specifically. The royal family has a, a homeopathic position yes. on staff at all times. Right, and that's probably a big reason for it, that the royal family has been a long-time um, proponents of homeopathy, so that's really um, propelled it forward in that country. Bloody hell. Yes, I have one other news item I'd like to touch on uh, before Watch we move already. on. Um and yes, this uh, this concerns Steve and my uh, semi-continuing debate <laughs> on monkeys versus I birds. love this debate. Now, here on uh, January 3rd, 2007, I have what I think everyone will agree is the definitive answer uh, to this debate. I've been in contact recently with a doctor who remains in Africa, <laughs> excuse me, in the Congo who runs a monkey preserve. And he's made some very interesting audio He's a little biased to me. That's regarding all these matters. Go on. I'm sorry. Excuse me. And uh, he made a particular audio tape that I really think will put the nail in this particular coffin. And I, I'd like to play this for you. Um, I, I'll just do some quick setup. The situation that, that he recorded was a monkey who found... In his tree, his home tree, a rather large bird yeah. one morning, uh, really of a sizable bird. And what happened when the monkey encountered the bird and approached him? All right, so let's let's play that for you now, and uh, we'll we'll see how that encounter went. All right, so please listen up. I'll keep my feathers numbered for for just such an emergency. That's, uh, we can see definitive. that when he wow. encountered that bird, he clobbered him, grabbed him, he put up a brief fight, and he threw him out of the tree. And, and the bird now, was Perry, pro- There's a problem. Go ahead, Jay. You go first, you, then. I'll... You you bought this one hook, line, and sinker? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, this was sent to me by this unnamed doctor from the Congo. Doctor Blank. Doctor Blank. Yeah. My point. Think, my point is, was that the was that the bird talking at the end of the <laughs> recording? Yes, it was. So if if that's the, the case, the then talks. perhaps the bird does have an advantage. Yeah, I didn't over hear the, the monkey. monkey talk. You've never heard of mima birds? Did you hear the monkey talk? <laughs> There's some various. It sounded suspiciously like foghorn leghorn. It's kind of did, didn't it? <laughs> 
Well, Perry, that that uh, that's irrefutable evidence. I got to hand it to you. What can I say? Yeah, very good, Perry. It's irrefutable evidence. Okay, so Thank officially, you. Thank you very much. The the, the monkeys uh, versus bird <laughs> case is closed. Is closed. Uh, it's closed. Monkeys on top, so saith the pending, doctor. Pending further evidence, of Thank course. You. As in all scientific controversies, we will bend. As new evidence comes to light, we may have to modify our conclusion. Was it Dr. Livingston, I presume? Perry, I'll, I'll, I'll have to take you at your word due to your credibility and credentials that that is completely legitimate audio that we heard there. Did you hear how hard he threw that bird down? You could hear the beak flip. You could actually hear the beak flip. I think you could, yeah. You could hear some. Steve, increase Perry's medication, please. (laughs) I like the background music, though. It was very very nice. Oh, man. I assume that that was just some of the soothing music he plays to keep the monkeys calm. (laughs) Now your email. Let's go on to your emails. The first email comes from Joe in Indiana, and Joe writes, Hi, guys. I've been listening to the podcast for several months now and enjoy it immensely. Happy to hear you're gaining the popularity you deserve. I received the most ridiculous present for Christmas this year and immediately thought of the Skeptic's Guide. My brother's girlfriend got the entire family Himalayan salt lamps. Is it pronounced Himalayan? Never mind. (laughs) At first, I thought it was just another funky-looking light fixture. But upon reading the included pamphlet, I was bombarded by the most pseudoscience I've ever personally encountered in my entire life. I've included scans for your enjoyment, but my personal favorite is how it can reorganize the epidermal layer of your skin. You can imagine my horror when I learned the girlfriend is actually the one who wrote the pamphlet and sells the lamps for $25 a piece. On the bright side, it's a decent lamp, and I enjoy joking that it's one of the Sankara stones from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Keep up the great work and good luck in the coming year, Joe. Uh, thanks a lot, Joe. Well, the yeah, the the salt lamps, whether they're of the Himalayan variety or otherwise, have been around for a while. That's the silliest thing to come out of the Himalayas since the abominable <laughs> snowman. <laughs> <laughs> so the the basic principle here is that the the these heated chunks of salt, basically these salt rocks. Um, release negative ions, and negative ions are supposed to attach to and remove impurities uh, and toxins from the air and purify the air. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's nonsense. It is the the premise that these <laughs> devices are releasing negative ions into the air is is false. They they don't appreciably change the the concentration of of positive or negative ions in the, in the room in which they which they're in, if they were releasing negative ions, they would just be attracted back again to the salt rock because they, that would leave a positive charge behind. So you know you would need to be, cre- you know, having a charged device or having a device that was actually generating energy, and that was designed to put out negative ions. Just heating up a, a rock is not going to do that. So that that the premise is false and. Just putting negative ions in the air doesn't have any demonstrated health benefits. In fact, that actually has been looked at specifically for asthma, which is the most common claim that's made for these. Although, obviously, now it seems that people have attached an expanding array of of health claims to these things. Uh, there, there have actually been studies of ionizers or things that generate negative ions that actually do do that. Sure, sharper, sharper image cells, several kinds. The re- review of these articles, which I'll have a link to, shows that they basically have no benefit. So 
<laughs> false premise, unsubstantiated claims, and evidence of lack of efficacy for some of the specific claims that are made for it. But go ahead and buy so, it if you really want. Yeah, you know, they're kind of funky looking, actually. You know, if you have that kind of decor, I guess they could be interesting. Yeah. But I hate when there are things that are either decorative or have some kind of you know non-utilitarian you know function. If you if you like the way these lamps look, you can't get them just for the way they look because somebody is selling them with uh, pseudoscientific claims. So they ruin it for you. The next email comes from Philippe Chartouni in Lebanon, and he writes, Dear all, newly arrived to your show, I quickly became addicted. I have one question that you may have addressed before. Is there any UFO story that is worth considering or pursuing. If such a story exists, then there may be room for a skeptic to, skeptic dreams that we sometimes need. Thank you for this very enriching and entertaining show. Warm regards. So he's basically saying he wants to know if he can hold out any hope that we're being visited by aliens. No. Uh, by the way, <laughs> oh, you, know, yeah, well, you can hold all the hope you want. <laughs> there's UFOs constantly, right, all the time. There's things in the sky that yeah, can't or, be identified. But well, yeah. Let's 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 define exactly. UFO, unidentified. But blind what object. he's talking about is not just that. He means extraterrestrial craft. To that, there which is no. not entirely out of the question. I mean, it could happen. But the fact is that we just haven't seen any definitive evidence thus far. There's not even yeah. any mildly compelling or interesting evidence, in my opinion. If, I mean, if you think of all the all the. Um, sophistication it would take for another alien being to contact us. Uh, why would they be abducting, you know, Hicks and the country <laughs> instead of trying to actually make real contact with us and, and communicate with yeah. us? And the limitations of interstellar travel are uh, Yeah, but but the fact is it's statistically likely that aliens exist and therefore – you know, it is possible that we could be visited someday. So I would say the answer to the question is yes. There, there could be some evidence that comes up that would be worthwhile investigating. Of course. Yeah, but if is there any UFO story existing? Uh, we're assuming it's an existing UFO story. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that, I think, would be no. Not even remotely. Well, of course, when you ask UFO proponents to uh, to give us their best evidence, they usually point to what we refer to as the three foot stack which is basically a very large volume of low-quality evidence. Uh, but if you ask for, say, what's, what's the best case? What's the best case or, or set of cases for um, the hypothesis that we're being visited by alien spacecraft? The, the classic ones that often get pointed out, for example, are the crashed saucer at Roswell, uh, which has been thoroughly debunked. That clearly was uh, a Project Mogul, which was a, uh, a balloon reflector used to spy on Soviet nuclear weapons testing. Uh, I mean, there are pictures of the of the crash debris. It was, you know, balsa wood, aluminum foil, and tape, and scotch tape. The But the story has evolved over the years and over the decades into, you know, the, the current mythology that we have now. There are also other stories more recently, like the the lights over Phoenix, which were shown to be um, flares dropped by uh, Air Force jets. Uh, the UFO over Mexico City was like this classic flying saucer dangling from a string. The Billy Meyer evidence is, is all really pathetic, low-quality, childish hoaxes. I mean, you know, literally saucers swinging pendulum-style from a string and 
and it gets worse from there. There isn't a single case that has withstood careful investigation and scrutiny. It's all very low quality. In addition to the ones where there is some visit, you know, video or physical evidence, uh, the, there are n numerous sightings, but the sightings are all either points of light or blobs of light, uh, which cannot be meaningfully characterized. Maybe you, the person making the observation doesn't know what they're looking at, and therefore it's unidentified, but no one is observing things that, that look like spaceships. Frequently, astronomical objects are misinterpreted as, uh, as unidentified flying objects. Venus is, is quite common. Uh, interestingly enough, things even as simple as the moon are often mistaken for UFOs. There's no perception. When you look up into the sky and you see something, there's no way to tell how far something is, how close it is, how fast it's moving, uh, how slowly it's moving. You, there's, there's, there's nothing. There's no... Um, but the moon? No point I mean, of reference. Really, I really, I know, I know that people mistake the moon for alien craft. But and how is that, how is that possible? Venus. Yeah, but even even more so, the moon. Right? One of our listeners made a one of our listeners made a really good point. He said that if you you know sometimes you're watching a nature documentary and they say look at this insect and see how cleverly he disguises himself as a plant. But when you're looking at it, you're saying no, it's a bug. I can see it's a bug. But if you were to just walk past it in the woods, you would have no idea it's there. So it's it's difficult when we talk about it and say, yes, yeah, someone mistake, mistook the moon for um, a UFO. Yeah, because it's such a recognizable object. It just seems like the least likely candidate to, to be mistaken as a UFO, the absolute least. <laughs> it does seem very odd. But that's the thing. It seems like that from from our viewpoint. But when you're in the moment and when you've had a few to drink and you're out and you're with friends and you look up in the sky and and but you well, know we're, we're going we're to factor <laughs> alcohol into these sightings. Sure. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Sure. <laughs> but I'm saying that there are a lot of situations where a person will look in You'd the sky and see the moon. You'd probably have to drink a whole bottle of wine to mistake the moon for. <laughs> for uh, Don't start. Uh, don't start. <laughs> Rebecca, honestly, come on, Rebecca. I, I hope I'm not insulting any listeners when I say this, but what type of baboon confuses the moon for a spaceship? You take it easy on our on our monkey cousins. Thank <laughs> no. You. Okay, well, no, I will tell you that... that just this evening, just this evening, I was um, I was riding my bike along the river. Um, I'm in Boston. I was riding along the Charles River, and the moon was behind some clouds, and it looked really amazing over the river. It did not look like the moon. The clouds had kind of diffused it and spread the light out to the point where it looked really eerie and weird. And I reiterate. <laughs> what kind of it, baboon can possibly miss... miss perceive the moon for a do 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 to flying ufo no <laughs> <laughs> hey sit on sit on your high horse if that makes you feel better but we've all had times where we've looked at something and mistook it for something else that's yeah, but I'm also saying. jay the, the other but, uh, jay the other point is that a lot of times people don't realize that that the moon appears to follow you as you're as you're traveling along, and that might be like, whoa! But it followed me wherever I went. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of strange things with the moon, and also like the way the moon looks really large sometimes, and sometimes On it looks the horizon, very small. Yeah. There are a lot of optical illusions with the moon. 
you know, something that's so obvious in the sky. You would have to be, be a drunken odd. ass or a moron to mistake the moon for an alien craft. <laughs> End of story. All right. Thank you. You guys are missing the point. Uh, first of all, the, the moon can look even more bizarre if it's late at night and the horns of a crescent moon are pointing in the in the direction that's not what you're used to looking at. And if it's through a haze, it can look like just a weirdly shaped blob of light. And then they are leaping from a blob of light to, I don't know what that blob of light is, maybe it's a spaceship, right? Most of these things, it's a point of light or it's a blob of light. And they can't identify what it is, or they think it's moving strangely because of their, their poor perspective. And then they leap from that to, it must be an alien spaceship. No one's actually seeing a detailed, yeah. you know, ship hovering that, you know, that anybody seeing it would, would clearly identify the details as that of a spaceship. Right? I think you have to go out of your way to abandon common sense to look up and say uh, something in the sky that, that is possibly the moon that I look at every night. It's a light, and it, that could be an alien spaceship. You really have to, I think, work hard to uh, try to draw that conclusion, frankly. I don't think it's as big a jump as you. Well, uh, the, 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 the basic fallacy that people are committing <laughs> is just failing to obey Occam's razor and making the argument from ignorance. I can't explain what that blob of light is. Therefore, it's an extraterrestrial craft. Well, they, they want to believe. Yeah. It. They want to believe it so much. It's so it's easy to make the leap. Sure, the writer of the letter wants to believe. Let's go on to email number three. This is a brief one. This one comes from Simon in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, and Simon writes, "Hi all, love the show." Just found this site and thought I'd pass it along as it is very funny. Hope you haven't seen it before. Keep up the good work. It's The website is Intelligent Forces. I'll have the link on the notes page. And it's basically a spoof on intelligent design. The theory that um, an intelligence in the universe actually attracts and holds all things together is just as viable. So it's, it's really just, I mean, it takes, it, the site, uh, you, you have to read it a little bit before you realize that it's a spoof. It's not, it, it, tr- it pretends to be, to be serious and legitimate, but it's uh, it is quite humorous. So take a look at it. I'll give the I'll give you the link. the uh, The last email comes from Jonathan Abrams from Ottawa, Canada, another Canadian. And Jonathan writes, uh, "What's chelation? Is it safe? Is it helpful?" That's his question. He gives a little bit of background. I've recently discovered your podcast a couple weeks ago and I'm thoroughly impressed. I'm working my way back through your episodes, but have not yet encountered the topic of chelation. We have not covered it before, as far as I can re- recall. My grandparents, who I've always regarded and still do as a couple of the most intelligent people I know, have been undergoing regular chelation treatments for the past few years. When they first told me about it a couple years ago, I thought I was I thought it was a little strange, but figured they knew what they were doing. I didn't give it any thought until I became a skeptic a couple of weeks ago. Getting regular chemical transfusions doesn't sound too safe to me. Should I talk to them about it? Is it safe? Is it helpful? Keep up the great work. Well, chelation therapy is total nonsense. It's been around. It's been around for a long time. Let me let me give. You, I'll, I'll have a link to a very thorough article on it by my friend Saul Green. But let me give you the the quick skinny on chelation therapy. It's actually a legitimate therapy for heavy metal poisoning. If you get mercury poisoning, you know you could be given chelating agents, which will bind to the mercury and cause it to precipitate out and get it out of your body. Yeah, or if you go to a Metallica concert. Yep, go on. That's right. So and so this is FDA approved for this purpose. You know, certain chelating agents are. Although I'll add, the specific chelating agent that's used most commonly for heavy metal poisoning is different than the agents used by the chelation therapists, the ones that are using it for illegitimate purposes. The basic theory 
is that hardening of the arteries, atherosclerotic plaques, have calcium as a, an important structural component. And that if you took the or leached or, or chelated the calcium out of those plaques, that they would basically disintegrate and fall apart, and that this would therefore cure hardening of the arteries. And they've gone through several, you know, various different mechanisms over the years. As each one gets disproved, they sort of morph it into a slightly different mechanism. And then that one gets disproved, and they still won't give up their claims. And they're further arguing that this treatment can be used instead of, like, bypass surgery for coronary artery disease or angioplasty, that it will cure peripheral vascular disease and prevent strokes. So the bottom line is that every mechanism that has been proposed as to how it might work has been shown not to be true. In addition to that, if you look at all of the clinical trials that have been done so far, they are basically negative. All of the, uh, the double-blind, placebo-controlled trials are negative. There have been a couple of recent ones looking at peripheral vascular disease in Canada and in the United States, which show that the perceived benefit of collision therapy was no better than placebo. Although it's interesting to note that both the placebo arm and the chelation arm both thought that their, their symptoms of basically like leg cramping and other symptoms of, of uh, poor blood flow down into the legs uh, improved significantly on treatment. But what this goes to show you is that with such subjective symptoms, that the, uh, the placebo effect uh, is, is, can be quite marked, and therefore all of the, the previous or earlier trials that showed that there might be some benefit from chelation therapy but did not have a placebo arm uh, are basically worthless, that the improvement in those studies um, could have simply be attributed to the placebo effect and not any effect from the chelation therapy. So what the proponents are doing are basically that they are relying upon the, the weaker evidence uh, to to maintain their claims, and they're denying or ignoring the higher quality evidence. And that's always a good sign of, uh, of pseudoscience and quackery, when you're cherry-picking the worst evidence in order to make your case. I'm glad we got that email, because I had never heard of chelation. That's a, that's a brand for 50 new years. of crap that I never yeah, it's heard kind of, of it's kind of past its heyday already, but it's still out there. Wow. There's inter- it's actually the center of another controversy, which I'll, I'll state um, very quickly which I'm reminded of partly because Stephen Strauss, who was the head of the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, recently resigned his post. I don't know who's taking his place yet. But uh, there are some supporters of chelation therapy which are trying to get the NIH to, to support a large clinical trial of chelation therapy. And some of my colleagues and I have been arguing, uh, especially Wallace Sampson, who, who's been on the show uh, before, as well as Kimball Atwood, who's also been interviewed on, on the show, are, are, are being very active in arguing that the trial is actually unethical because this treatment has already been proven not to work. It's also, by the way, not that safe a treatment. You know, it does require IV infusions of, you know, a powerful drug, and it does actually take important minerals out of your body. I've personally treated one patient who was suffering neurological complications from low blood calcium from chelation therapy, so it's not a safe treatment. And, e- and even besides that, it's already been proven adequately not to work. Therefore, it's unethical to study it in human subjects. Does the FDA have anything to say about this? Now, the, the FDA um, has approved these agents for trials in humans, but again, they, they're, they're not concerned with what is being studied in other words, what, the, what, what clinical effect is being looked at. But do they have anything to contribute as far as this uh, new set of trials that they're trying to... The FDA has said that these drugs do not work 
for you know for atherosclerosis or, or for heart disease or for vascular disease. Uh, but you know the FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. What the the FDA does and what similar agencies in other countries do is that they approve drugs so that they can be marketed for a specific indication. But once a drug is on the market, then it's up to the medical community to decide how best to use it. So that is not something that's regulated, regulated by the FDA. The FDA does get involved in approving uh, human drug trials, but there's also a separate mechanism for that. There's human investigation committees and ethical committees that uh, basically approve human trials. Uh, in addition to that, the FDA may give an agent or a drug like an investigational new drug indication, basically saying that they can use this to do FDA trials, trials that can then be used in order to um, apply for FDA approval for, for a specific indication. So again, just to get back to chelation therapy, the bottom line there is you know, just say no to chelation therapy. It doesn't work. The mechanisms have been shown not to be true. Uh, and even to the point where arguing for further research is probably unethical. And now, Randy Speaks. Hello, this is James Randy. I was just speaking with Jerry Andrus, the... Uh, illusionist and our very, very good friend who will be at TAM5, as I'm sure you all know. Jerry turns out these absolutely remarkable, mind-boggling, is the only way to describe them, optical illusions. I've seen many a strong scientist in tears trying to figure out what's happening to his sensory input, all as a result of Jerry Andrus's evil influence. Jerry reminded me of an episode that happened some years ago when he was sent over to Japan to prepare a special there on his optical illusions. Now, as I've mentioned before, magicians have peculiar expertise. It can be very, very limited, but it's very strong in the direction that it takes. We know two things with great certainty. A, how people can be fooled. B, how they fool themselves. Well, on this particular episode, Jerry had a meeting with the producers and directors at his home in Oregon, and they agreed to the contract and such, and everything was all well well done and well organized and well on its way. But then when he actually got over there and into the studio, things took a different turn. Jerry ran into the dreaded lighting director. Now, a lot of magic tricks and certainly optical illusions depend very much on the lighting. This lighting director was well-trained and obviously knew what he was doing, but when it came to Jerry's effects, he was out of his depth. Some of the effects that Jerry had shown the folks back in Oregon were just not going to work unless they listened to him rather than the lighting director, who was intent on following the book rules, this is the way you light a scene of this kind. Well, Jerry just let him go right ahead because he didn't seem to want to listen, and after all, he had a lot of autonomy there. He was an important man to the production of this television special. He wasn't one who's likely to take advice. One of the major illusions, and I won't get into the details of what it was, got all set up, was all ready to go, and they tried it on camera. It was a total fiasco. Jerry pointed out that the lighting had to be diffuse, it couldn't cast shadows or the effect wouldn't work. 
but the lighting director argued with him. No, that's the way we light scenes in Japan. Jerry, gentle soul that he is, didn't want to argue with the man, but he simply took it upon himself to put a diffusing screen in there, and lo and behold, the illusion worked perfectly. Now, this didn't please the lighting director at all, because he'd been one-upped, so to speak, and you don't do that with an Asian population. However, when I did my TV special in Seoul, Korea, some years back, I encountered the producer, whose name was Nam, and I told him in so many words, based on Jerry Andrus's experience, his bad experience with lighting directors, that I should be listened to, and I had good opinions, I knew how these things worked or didn't work. Well, Nam not only listened, he got a lot of input from me, and in some occasions, as when he went to Indonesia to film one of the fakers over there who was using some high-voltage equipment to produce miracles, Nam informed me that I couldn't be included in the crew because this fellow had specifically forbidden me to show up on the site. I talked to Nam at length and told him what he should do and how he should go about investigating the matter. And he listened. Oh, did he listen. When he came back to Seoul and they showed me the footage he'd obtained, I threw my arms around him and gave him a big hug. He certainly deserved it. Nam had listened to what I'd told him. He'd done some innovation of his own, and he recognized that the way of thinking, not the thoughts, but the way of thinking that I had taught him was the way to go about it. Here in America, one of the exceptions to the rule, the general rule of people having expertise that wouldn't quite work, was the late Ernie Kovacs. I did a couple of shows with Ernie, and in every case, he simply told everyone, listen to this man, he knows how the thing works. Well, they did listen, Ernie was happy, I was happy, and apparently the audience was happy too. At least we didn't get any complaints. So, expertise is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. No, I don't have the Ph.D., but when it comes to my expertise, my subject of expertise, I do know what I'm talking about. This is James Randi. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are real and one is fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake, and you guys can play along at home or in your car or in your submarine or wherever you happen to listen to these podcasts. <laughs> are you guys ready? Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Number one, a new study demonstrates the ability to change the buying preferences of subjects by magnetically stimulating certain regions of the brain. Item number two, new study shows that humans are actually quite good at tracking by sense of smell alone. And item number three, astronomers think they have seen the very first stars in the universe. Rebecca, why don't you go first? Oh, no. <laughs> um, wait, so I have to find out which one's false, right? <laughs> right, which one's the fake, which one's the fake. You know, you do switch it up every now and again. I feel like I need to point that out every now and again. Because... It's the same one, It's the same game <laughs> that guys play in a strip joint. Which one's the fake? 
<laughs> what? <laughs> that was so so inappropriate. First of all, second of all, what kind of strip joints are you going to, Steve? Because uh, yeah, the ones really? I go to, you go and you pay your money and you stare at the naked ladies. No, and trivia. they're all fake. Right? I need to hear <laughs> these again. I forgot them. Already. Okay, 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 okay. So the first one is something about magnets, right? That that's suspicious to me because magnets. Study are often demonstrates used. the ability to change the buying preferences of subjects by magnetically stimulating certain regions of the brain. That sounds suspiciously like bullshit to me. So I'm going to go with that one. Alrighty, I don't like Bob. magnets. Okay, <laughs> Bob. Um, humans are good at tracking using the sense of smell. I'm going to say that's true. Uh, the first stars. Um, I hope you're not subtly tweaking this story uh, and that it really wasn't the first stars but some sort of stellar objects because I don't know if they're really seeing the first stars but maybe the first galaxies um, so I hope you're not doing that but one did sound pretty cracky to me so I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say one is false the preference changing prefer- buying preferences using a magnetic field stick with Alrighty. the winner that's a good tactic <laughs> Evan Yeah. <laughs> the winner being me sorry go on Look, I'm forced to I'm forced to agree with my slightly inebriated colleagues. Um, Let's not mention the that, inebriation on the air. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is a cleverly disguised. <laughs> sorry, Go on. I don't think we'll have to mention it. It's mentioning itself. <laughs> um, the buying habits of people cannot be influenced by magnets of any kind, even MRIs. That one is obviously fiction. Thank you. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Perry. Yeah, the only body part that magnets have shown to affect so far are... are no, it can't affect the brain. That, that's not true. Okay, Jay. <laughs> all right, you guys, you see the predicament I'm in here? No. If, since you all pick the magnet one, if I don't pick it and I do pick the correct one, I, I will be the only one that picks the right one. It would be yes. amazing. It would be amazing. It would be totally amazing. However, I am totally... <laughs> compelled to pick the magnet one because it seems so stupid. So here I am in 2007 hoping not to lose. But I got to go with the magnet one because it just doesn't doesn't seem right, Steve. Get it off to a good start there. Jay. All right. We here must we stand Jay, together. Jay, did you want to bet some bacon on that? Just not this no, just not, no, not this year. Okay. Let's start with let's go let's start with number 3. Astronomers think they may have seen the very first stars in the universe. This one is science. Nice. And Bob, you're right. I am talking referring to what you think I'm referring to. Uh so they have seen these extremely uh large and very intrinsically bright objects at about 13 billion light years away. The universe is some somewhere around 13.7 billion years old. So something that's 13 billion light years away is also 13 billion years in the past and is mm-hmm. therefore at the very beginning of the universe. These may be the very first stars that formed. They also may be um, black holes um, gobbling up a lot of, of the dense material uh, in the early universe. So then they would be quasars then? Something like that. Uh, it's in a little math, therefore, shows that these newfound objects are indeed the infants of the universe, but what are they? If they are stars, they are about ten times more massive than theory suggests the first stars would have been. Uh, so they're still mysteri- they're, they're mysterious objects. Uh, they, that's why I said they think they may have found the first stars. Um, that, that's one of the hypotheses, but other things are also possible. But this is uh, you know, pretty cool. They are you know, uh, using techniques to, with, with existing telescopes to look back to the very beginning of the universe. Very nifty. So, Steve, 
I'm confused about this because, like, do we know where the supposed center of the universe is? I mean, it's there is no center of the universe. No, every everywhere is a center, Jay. I know that. I've read that too, Bob. But what I mean is, um, how do they determine whether whether or not these are the ones that would be considered like the first? Well, it's the age, really. Yeah, it's just the age, Jay. It's just that if we're look, if you're looking 13 billion years in the distance, 13 billion light years distant, you are looking 13 billion years in the past. So we are looking at the universe as it was, you know, 700 million years after the Big Bang. Assuming those calculations are correct of when yeah, the Big Bang right. happened, of course. Okay, all right. So that one was fake. That was that was science. I mean, that was science. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Next. Let's go to number two. New study shows that humans are actually quite good at tracking by sense of smell alone. That and one is also science. Yeah. <laughs> one for one. This is a. They actually. Uh, <laughs> Can we start over? We're all a thousand. <laughs> Hang on. They actually uh, made a trail of chocolate smell. I don't know why they chose essence of chocolate. I guess they figured people would be good at tracking it, and they laid it along a field. You know. On on a piece of string, and then they had subjects with like foot and and knee pads on, so they couldn't feel the ground, and blindfolded, and with and with earmuffs on, so they couldn't hear anything. So, again, just tried to limit them to their sense of smell. Then they um, had them crawl along the ground, sniffing the ground, and following the trail of chocolate smell, and they were actually able to do it quite well, much better than anybody thought. You know, the old, the old thinking is that humans lost primates in general. In fact, you know, uh, lost a lot of um, of our this, the sensitivity, the, the sophistication and discrimination of our sense of smell. Um, well, we lost the wet noses that are generally associated with good smellers. Yeah, but I, th- I don't think that's what what that doesn't really correlate with with the good ability to smell. I mean, that's not what causes it. It's in fact the uh, genetically like. Canines, for example, have many, many more genes dedicated to the development of the olfactory system of smell than, than do primates. Steve, I read something interesting about that. Um, I don't know my sources, so take it for what it's worth. I've read that uh, the, the genes that encode, that, that encode olfaction for humans, about 70 to 80% of them are mutated beyond function. Mm-hmm. Does that sound true to you? Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of genes that we had in the past, but that have become just dysfunctional over time, because there was no selective pressure to maintain them. Because we right. were, we, were, we were relying less and less on our on our smell when we were, you know, standing more upright. So, um, you know, the smell is a useful sense for tracking and things like that. When you have your nose to the ground and you're sniffing, like dogs will often do. Yeah, but I mean, you know, so we could smell a little chocolate on the ground. And and we did a little better than predicted. Okay, that's kind of interesting, but we still stink at it compared to a hound. We're, still, we're not we're not as good as a hound. Yeah, hounds would, no. were much quicker, much better at it than people were. So Perry, our our sense of smell stinks. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I remember hearing when I was a kid that 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 thing that's up in your olfactory senses. If you unwrap a human's, it's the size of a postage stamp, and if you unwrap a dog's, it's the size of a handkerchief. I, I don't know what they were talking about, but does that sound right to you, Steve? <laughs> the, the surface area, the surface area right. that of, of receptors that set, that sense the chemicals okay. that give us All odor. Right. Yeah, there, yeah, it's you. it's really. I mean, they're not just better than us. They are far and away so much better than us. Something like two orders of magnitude. But they they did allow some of the subjects to to practice at it, and they said they they actually got pretty good. They were able How to do it that? quicker that? and quicker. So you just have to have your nose to the ground. 
Uh, which means that, number one, a study demonstrates the ability to change the buying preference of subjects by magnetically stimulating certain regions of the brain is fiction. Wow. It's patently false. I don't remember the last time I got one right. Seems like you guys all got hung up on the fact that you can't magnetically stimulate the brain. That, however, is not true. You can magnetically stimulate the brain. You can, you can use basically a magnetic field to induce electrical currents in different regions of the brain. That has been done. So I guess I was assuming too much knowledge on your parts. And... Oh, nice. wait a minute. We all Steve. win, and he gives us a diss. Are you trying to take my sweet, sweet victory away from me? You guys, congratulations. You yes. all got it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Go yeah, us. Yay. Yay. <laughs> this was based on uh, – I have to start you guys off with an easy one this year. Um, this was based on a real study, however. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't inducing buying preferences, but what they're trying to do is see if they could figure out how to predict the buying re- preferences of subjects by, by using functional MRI scans. Uh, so this is a part of a new field of neuroeconomics, where they're actually trying oh to my God. like present people with with marketing strategies, for example, and look at their fMRI scan and see what parts of their brain light up with their, and then how does that correlate to their later buying preferences. So they're they're actually trying to develop this study to to try to better hone marketing strategies by actually looking at the neurological response that it generates in people with functional MRI scan. Who thought those two words would be put together? Neuroeconomics. <laughs> right. But I extrapolated that from just reversing it and magnetically stimulating those regions of the brain, which you is not impossible. Us, it's not impossible. Stop trying right, you, guys, us, you guys all saw through it. You did. did a good job. All right. We read well you like an open book. Open book. <laughs> Listen, Mr. Twenty Two Percent over there. <laughs> Please. Please, that's just so you don't feel like morons. Hey guys, so well, I propose that, that for two thousand and seven we hit the reset button on this running score. <laughs> I, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna blackball that actually. I'm gonna suggest that we um, the reset keep. button. So so am I. I say we stay st- stay as it is. Stay the course. That's what I say. <laughs> Well, thank you for your unbiased <laughs> recommendations, guys. <laughs> Evan, hi. You have a puzzle for the two th- for the first episode of two thousand. Oh, I do, I do. All right, let's hear it. I read red lines on a white background, but occasionally the background is not white. I interpret stress patterns, but by nature I struggle to stay upright. I analyze vessels and the directions they travel but their movements mean nothing. And though its lone job is to protect you, I have the power to see beyond this purpose. What is my profession? Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. Enjoy. Yeah, your puzzles are getting very interesting. Thank you for not rhyming, Evan. <laughs> you still owe us a, a rap. You still need oh to rap a puzzle. So do I do want to hear a rap still. A rap? Oh yeah. My God. It, 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 a funky, uh, cool rap. <laughs> All right, I guess sometime in 2007 I'll have to come up with something. It doesn't have to be a gangster rap, just some kind of rap. Hip-hop? It could be trip-hop, even. I'm with it. I'm hip. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's adorable. Thank you. The way you're not cold. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that is our first show for 2007. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you, everyone, for, for Such joining me. as it me. was. Bob, you have a quote to close out the show for us? Yes, this is a quote 
by Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw that I, that I liked. He said, The fact that a believer is happier than a skeptic is no more to the point than the fact that a drunken man is happier than a sober one. The happiness of credulity is a cheap and dangerous quality. It's a nice quote. Well, well done, George. <laughs> Can we interview that? <laughs> we could try. We could try. So I'll point out um, for our listeners that we were that most of us, everyone except for Perry, is going to be at the TAM Five, the Amazing Meeting Five in Las Vegas, Nevada, January eighteenth to twenty first. I think there is still room. So if you haven't made your uh, reservations yet, check out the JREF site and join us. It's going to be a fun time. You might actually learn something or two. I understand there's going to be some skeptical lectures there at the same time. If you're not yeah, careful, probably. you might learn something before we're done. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks yeah, for joining me. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Steve. Night, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Happy everyone. New Year. And until next week... This is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission.